right. Good morning, everybody. We are in the last chapter of the book of Philippians, and so as we kind of come to a conclusion both this week and next week before we start our Christmas series, I want to just briefly review some of the key themes that we've been talking about as we've journeyed through the book of Philippians. Um, One of the themes, if you remember, has to deal with the issue of unity. Paul, remember, in the early chapter says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, like having the same goal, being of one accord. So this issue of unity was exceptionally important for Paul, the apostle. Excuse me, one of the other themes uh, is this idea of enduring in the midst of persecution and suffering. And that's, that's a big thing for Paul because he's cer- certainly uh, not in a great situation. As he writes this letter, he's in prison. One of the other major themes is the issue of joy and rejoicing. And today, Paul's going to give the command to the Christians in Philippi that they ought to not be anxious about anything, but rather rejoice and rejoice always. Now, for many people, the book of Philippians is known as the book of joy because it has this theme running all throughout it. But for for many of you, as, as you kind of encounter these joy passages and these commands to rejoice and not to be anxious about anything, you might be saying like something like, yeah, easier said than done. Like, have you ever tried not to be anxious about anything? Don't worry about anything. And Paul just gives it as a command, like it's no big deal. Don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious, just rejoice. And you're like, dude, what about the bills, my kids, my work, the economy? Uh, I got health issues. I'm aging. I'm comparing myself to other people at work. So you got all these things that are on your mind that are causing like stress, worry, and anxiety. And then besides that, besides all of the things that are up in your face, there's all kinds of things in the world to worry about. And the way the, the way the modern world works is you're bombarded with, with the sum total of human woe and suffering all of the time. That's an exaggeration, but the point still stands. Because of news and media and technology, you are bombarded regularly with all the human stories of suffering and tragedy. And you can just take a sample of what's out there like on, ma- on major news outlets to see that it's nothing but bad news all of the time. I took some screen captures just randomly this week. Like, oh, I've got all kinds of stresses in my life. What's going on in the world? Uh, Israel makes history with use of space defense system to destroy missile. A reminder that there's a war going on there. And as you're reminded about that war, you might be reminded that there's other wars going on in the world. And as you're reminded about that, you might be reminded about the fact that some of these wars could lead to a major world war. You know, so, oh, possible world wars, great. Let me go to a different section. Uh, this is the biz- like a business section. See if there's anything positive or uplifting. Open eye, Sam's Altman exits as CEO because board no longer has confidence in ability to lead. Okay, kind of not great news, but I don't know the guy, so not that big of a deal, but still kind of negative. What about this top right thing? Black Friday comes early this year. Oh, okay. Signaling worries about holiday demand. It's like the deals that I thought I was going to get in Thanksgiving, there's even bad news with that. Good Friday, I mean, Black Friday is just horrible. Okay, let's go to, um, what's something that like, can't have be filled with just negativity and bad news? Let's go to the sports section. The sports section, this is going to be about games and scores and stuff. No, 
okay? Las Vegas Grand Prix uh, practice session canceled due to a manhole cover failure. Next, host Carissa Thompson apologizes after saying she fabricated NFL sideline reports facing mounting criticism. Everton deducted 10 points for breaching English Premier League rules. Joe Brown exits with injury. Uh, Injury, cheating, gossip, slander, and a manhole. (laughs) Like, nothing but negativity. Everywhere you look, it's all bad all the time. It's all bad all the time. And so, you're sort of like, okay, Paul, easier said than done, you know, just to not be anxious about anything. Just rejoice like it's, like, do you know how hard it is, like, scrolling the internet? And Paul would be saying something like, bro, I'm in prison. I've been tortured. I've experienced abandoned, loss, betrayal. Nevertheless, here's my command, rejoice and rejoice always. So today, in chapter 4, Paul is not only going to give us this command, but he's going to give us profound wisdom in how we can go about being successful in the task that he's given us. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, the first word here is therefore, and there's a a long-running, I don't know if it's a joke what quite to call it. But if you've been a Christian a long time, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Uh, Preachers say it, teachers say it, Sunday school teachers say it, but they say, whenever you encounter the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And you almost, it's kind of like, are you insulting my intelligence? Like, I don't know what the word therefore means. Like, I know therefore means there's something before it, but there's a reason why they do it. It's because if you were to read a news article that began with therefore, You'd go, that doesn't make sense. What's going on? However, many times when we read the Bible, we'll start off in a chapter like this, and it'll say, therefore, and we won't go back and actually see what it's there for. Like, it's a a habit that we've developed in our biblical reading. So what comes right before this? What's the therefore, therefore? Paul states, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul says, remember you're a citizen of heaven. Yes, you have earthly citizenship and allegiances, but ultimately the Christian is a citizen of heaven. And we're a citizen in wait. We're waiting for something. Namely, we wait for our savior. And what's going to happen when our Savior returns? It says two things. One deals with something like up close and intimate, and the other deals with something sort of global that's out there. First, he's going to transform our lowly bodies, and then he's going to subject all things to himself. So um, first, we are waiting a Savior because he is going to transform our low, lowly bodies. Now, some... Th- the, the older you get, the more that is important. I, I guess that reveals like the different ages in the group, like the young people. I'm not, I'm getting it. But like the older you get, the more you are aware of this thing's not going to work forever. It's, it's slowing down. And there's this like existential angst that comes with it. Like your, your body's not working like it used to. And it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. 
And so the Christian hope is that God will give us new bodies. Our bodies will be transformed. We won't be left in the one that's getting old and decaying. So, like, there's hope. But then also there's this global kind of cosmic hope. Christ will subject things, all, all things to himself. So he's not just going to make your body right. He is going to right all wrongs. He is coming back. He's going to judge the world. And Christ's judgment for the believer isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing when Christ rights the wrongs of this world. And so we have a hope that's based on this idea that Christ is returning. Our Savior is going to come to us because we're citizens of heaven and we will have a renewed body and creation will be restored. So we take all of that with us into chapter four where he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So because of these truths, stand firm, don't waver. Then he says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now this is where Paul just like does name dropping. He drops some names. Now remember, Philippians would have been received as as a church and then there would have been an assigned reader who goes up and reads the letter to the entire congregation. And like picture if you're one of these women in the crowd, like you've been hearing chapter one and two about needing to be unified, make my joy complete, put put aside selfish divisions, look out for others. And if you're like Yodi, you're probably going, man, I know he's talking about Syntyche, always causing division, giving me heartache, giving the church heartache. And then Syntyche's probably, I know he ain't say Euodia's name, but I know everyone in this building knows he's talking about her. She's drama. And then they turn to chapter four and he name drops you, both of you, in the letter and says, get it together. Seek out unity. And then think about, think about if this was you. You not only got name drop in that letter being read out loud, this letter gets put in the Bible, man. And for 2,000 years, 2,000 years later in Gilray, California, people are reading about your drama and how Paul had to write a letter from prison telling you to get it together. So you've had three chapters of rich theological development, but, but it's not just theology in the abstract. It has this on-the-ground concrete purpose, right? Seek out unity. Seek out, be one, one mind. Be of one accord. And then he encourages some other people to help him out in that process. He mentions a guy named Clement. And he also says, um, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. We don't know who the true companion is, who, who, who's that person, but what a great, great way to be referred to by Paul the Apostle, like you're the true companion. If I was that dude, I want, that's where I'd want my name to be dropped. Mention me then, Paul but he's, he's encouraging the body of believers to bring about unity. Now, Paul, it's not just like two drama between these two ladies. Obviously, it's a significant division that's probably causing other divisions in the church. Otherwise, Paul's not gonna write from prison for some small issue. There's a significant issue that's bringing about division, and Paul says, make my joy complete. Get on the same page. Be united. Put aside the differences. And then he transitions to our rejoicing section. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says rejoice and rejoice always, and it's a command. In, in Greek, there's a way to make something clear if it's an imperative, and, and that's it. This is an imperative. Paul is commanding the believers to be a joy-filled people, to rejoice, to let their reasonableness be known to everyone, and that they are not to be anxious about anything. And again, you're going like, be anxious about anything and just rejoice. Well, how do you do that? Well, Paul first gives a grounds, a grounding for this command to rejoice. We are not to be anxious and we are to rejoice because the Lord is at hand. Now, the question that arises is, in what way is the Lord at hand? There's two ways to look at this. In, in one way, the Lord is at hand. You can, you can see that as a way to say, spatially, the Lord is near. If something is at hand, if it's readily available at hand, it's close, it's near. And so in one sense, Paul is saying, Christ is near to you. The promise of Scripture is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ is close. He is here. And so you could rejoice because God's presence is with you. That's Emmanuel, God with us. But when we refer to the Lord being at hand, it also has a sense in which it means like Christ is going to return to judge the righteous and the wicked. The Lord is coming soon. He's coming quickly. That's the language of scripture. So when we say the Lord is at hand, we are talking about also the return of Christ. So Paul is saying, you can rejoice because you know Christ is near and he's coming again. Now that should sound familiar because right before the therefore, we were talking about what Christ is going to do at his return. And so Christ is near, he is close, but he's also simultaneously going to return again and right the wrongs of this world. In other words, there's a grounds for the command to rejoice. And the grounding of that is found in the person of Christ. Okay, now there's some work we have to do on joy and rejoicing. Because in the modern world, there's a, 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 a sharp division that's made between happiness and joy. And, and if you've heard messages on joy, even in churches, it, it's, it's well-intended, well-meaning, but there's this real distinction between happiness and joy. And there's great distance between the meaning of happiness and joy. And so it's usually communicated something like this. Happiness is a, a temporary emotion that's always going to be fading and fleeting. So you have it for a little bit and then it's gone. And so it's, it's not what you should focus on. But joy is an, an inner peace and contentment that you have in God. Okay, you probably heard some, something like this. And there's truth to this. There is some truth to this. But my concern is that we've created too much distance between happiness and joy. As if you can be joy, like you can have joy, but it never manifests in some type of happiness. It's, you know what I mean? So you can meet somebody like, I'm a Christian and I have a joy of the Lord. You got the joy of the Lord, bro? You've never looked happy, ever. In fact, you're a jerk all of the time. Well, that's because you don't understand what joy of the Lord is. I have it. It's an internal contentment. It's like you're a jerk, you're grouchy, you're grumpy. And so, yes, joy is something 
very profound. But if you have the joy that comes from the Lord, it ought to manifest in the external world in some observable manner, right? Like, it should be seen at least in some sense. Now, that's going to occur differently for different types of people because we're all temperamentally wired different. You know what I mean? So, so for example, to use me as an example, I, I'm not wired temperamentally to be the... <laughs> oh, so, I'm kind of like a... War's around the corner. <laughs> Can't even get good deals. Manhole, man, messing up the race. So I'm not, I'm not this like super extroverted, happy like. Nevertheless, that is no excuse to be like, if I have the joy of Christ in me, at least in some sense, it ought to manifest every now and then in some observable way. For those who knew me before Christ, they ought to be able to say, something's different about him. It's not like, no, he has the exact same level of grumpiness he did before Christ. Like, there ought to be something different. And so my concern is, yes, we can have a a fleeting emotion of happiness, but let's not divorce joy from happiness to such a degree that we just pretend joy is always on the inside. That's a very modern thing to do. It's a very Disney thing to do as well. What's most important is true is what's deep down inside of me. Well, if it really is deep down inside of you, it should manifest itself. And it feels good when joy manifests, right? To be like physically smiling and happy and rejoice, it feels good. That's a good thing. And so my concern is that we just differ, we make those too distant in their meaning. And Paul's saying, just rejoice. You have reason to rejoice. And what's the reason to rejoice? The grounding that is given to you in Christ. He is near you, he's close to you. And no matter what's happened to you or what will happen to you, he will come again and right the wrongs of this world. So there's reason to rejoice. Now that's not to say that you, you, you ignore bad things. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul talks about being sorrowful but always rejoicing. And he had a lot to be sorrowful of but he had a lot more to be rejoicing of. So the idea is not that you're just happy and everything's cool all the time. It's that even in the midst of sorrow, you can be always rejoicing. Now, the antidote against this sort of like anxious-filled thought life that Paul gives is one that goes to God and gives those thoughts to him, but it's also done with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving serves as sort of this immunity booster to worrying and stressing. And at first you might not see the connection, but think about people that you know who are incredibly grateful and thankful, and they're always externally expressing their gratitude. Not always, but most of the time, those people are less stressed out. People who are thankful for the little things the big, big things, and they're reminding themselves of the many blessings in their life, they, that thankfulness is just like an immunity booster. It, it stops a lot of the anxious thoughts. I mean, not completely or 100% of the time, but in general, that's true. It's true. The problem is we live in a modern world that is designed to make you ungrateful. And what's pretty wild about this is regarding our, concerning our standard of living and how great it is, we have probably more reason to be a thankful people than anybody in human history, and yet we are probably the most ungrateful culture that's ever existed. Even if we're not like 
the most ungrateful. We're top 10. Like we're an ungrateful people, just culturally, like as a whole. And we have like every reason to see blessing around us. And so the modern world is designed like it's, it, it disguises these blessings and hides them from you, from you and gets you to focus on the things that cause the stress and anxious thoughts. And we'll call this like the gods of certainty. The gods of certainty, the false gods of certainty, demand that you have safety, security, that you can be sure about your reputation and what people think of you and how you look. And you have to have all these things perfectly aligned. And they're trying to convince you that you need, you need to know this stuff. You need to have this stuff. When the scriptures tell you what you can be sure of is that Christ is near and he's returning again. But make no mistake about it, the Bible never promises you that in this life you won't have any trouble. Out of nowhere, life can hit you like a train going a thousand miles per hour. It can hit you harder than you ever thought it could hit you. And you don't have certainty that that won't happen. Your certainty is that Christ is near and he's returning for his people. You can cling to the promises of God, but you don't get to make stuff up like, well, nothing bad is gonna happen. So what they do is the way the culture is, is it gets you to focus on the things that you can't control and then it, 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 it gets you to stress and to worry about them. I'll give you an example. Um, Let's say I'm looking to buy a new car for my family. And uh, so, you know, when, if you've ever looked at something, the whole internet is designed then to get you with the advertisements. And so now you're getting car ads, okay? I have a big family, so not gonna be car ads. It's gonna be like SUV ads. Um, big family. And one of them, it knows that like, I'm a father of a big family because it's done all the data collection and stuff like that. It's this big, nice like SUV. And the first thing it says is rated number one in safety. And then it lists all the safety features. And it tells you how it blows away all the other stuff. And it doesn't say it directly, but it's pretty much saying, you're a bad father for not giving safety to, you know what the type of say, look at this. It flew off the Grand Canyon and the kids came out laughing and smiling. It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh. And let me be clear, the desire for a father to give safety to his family is a good thing, but it's playing off of that. So, I, it, so, so it's working on me. Tell me more about how safe this thing is gonna be. Okay, so then, even though I might've had a pretty safe vehicle before, I kind of convinced myself, now I need to be certain that my family is safe in the vehicle that we drive. Okay, so then I, I go and purchase this. And then you purchase it and you're driving it around, you go on a vacation and, and you go to fill up this thing. Honey, do you know how much it costs to fill this? this? It was $7,227 to fill this, this vehicle up. And now you're worried about what? Money and gas and finances. Is the gas going to go down? Is it going to go? And now there's a whole another thing to stress and worry about. And you could do this with anything. You could pick it with like safety. You could pick it... Think about like your reputation or how you think your coworkers perceive you. You buy a nicer car so, so because the commercial showed like um, a man in a nice suit driving this nice car and then he gets out of the car and like instantly people respect him. And so you have this desire. No, I want, my co I want to know that my coworkers respect me. Then you get the vehicle and then like a month later, you know they're still making fun of you in the lunchroom. You know, like I didn't solve anything. You know what I mean? So it's like, you're trying to seek control in all these areas 
And all of the products are designed to manipulate this like good impulse to wanting to do right, but then you're just unsure and you're insecure about everything. So again, it's good to want to be safe, but there's a way in which things can uh, manipulate that. And what Christ promises us is his presence, his forgiveness, his grace, himself, his very being, that he will return again, right the world of its wrongs. But you can't be sure, you can't live your life seeking certainty that nothing bad will ever happen. In this world, you will have trouble, right? That's actually the words of Christ. In this world, you will have. So we go back to Paul's command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we take our worries, our stresses, our anxious thoughts, and we name them, and we take them to God. And we say, I need, I need help with these things. We take them to him, but then we do it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving is what the text says. And if you cultivate this thanksgiving, and you focus on the things that you have, reasons you have to be thankful it will help you. It's not going to fix. There's nothing that's going to, for those of you who wrestle with anxious thoughts, it's not like this is going to magically fix everything. I'm just telling you, thankfulness helps, helps a lot. And then Paul says this, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's very profound. Who doesn't want that? A peace that transcends human understanding. It surpasses human understanding. Let me help you understand this peace that surpasses all understanding. I can't help you understand. It surpasses all understanding. It just just said that. It surpasses all understanding. And you go, well, what help is that then? Like, because it's not a peace that comes from in you or your thinking or your own understanding or your intelligence. It comes from somewhere else. It's, it's a grace and a gift from God's spirit. And I don't know how it works, but I've seen it. And you might have seen it. You might have experienced it. You see someone and just a horrible tragedy happens in their life and based upon human understanding, they have no reason to have peace in this moment. And you're talking to this individual and you're hearing them in tears talk about how difficult it is and then you might hear them say something like, I know I could get through this, God has given me a peace about it. It's like, well, what did you do to get it? I didn't do anything. Well, help me understand. I don't know how it works. God has given me a peace to endure. Some of you have seen this. Some of you have experienced it. It surpasses just human understanding because it's from somewhere else. It's a gift that comes down to us. And Paul transitions from that thought and then gives us probably some of the most profound, practical wisdom in developing this, the art of being grateful and not being anxious. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul lists things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. And he says, think about these things. Set your minds on them. Now, at first, that could seem like a sort of pie in the sky, like just, it's not profound advice. It's just don't worry, be happy, or think happy thoughts, or don't let all the bad stuff get you down. That's, that's not what Paul's doing. It's not just think happy thoughts and it's gonna be okay. Remember, Paul is in prison. He knows suffering. He is saying that yes, yes, this world is filled with brokenness and evil and suffering and anguish. There is that. But also in the midst of all of that, there are things that are true and good and beautiful. And set your mind on these things and focus on them. Now question, what do we set our minds on? What's, what's filling our minds usually? Like think about um, the TV shows or the movies you watch. Think about the news articles. Think about all the social media posts. Think about, think about the music you listen to. And not just like you as an individual, because I want to be in, talk about the individual, but just as a culture. Think about as a culture. The movies, the media, the news, the music we're listening to. Like, what is that doing to us? And then, likewise, you, what do you usually turn to when your mind is filled with a bunch of bad stuff? <laughs> I turn to other bad things. And so, like, is music making you look up or is it making you look only on the horizontal plane? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Okay. When God created the world, he created the world in such a way that he imbued the world with truth, goodness, and beauty. And every single human being has a longing for truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're familiar with philosophy um, and the philosophical traditions, you know that um, these three elements, truth, goodness, and beauty, are often called the transcendentals. And without getting into the whole history of the philosophical traditions, at least know that in the Christian tradition, what we would say is that these three transcendentals, truth, goodness, or beauties, and beauty are ways in which we could experience the goodness, mercy, and gifts of God. And each one of these things, truth, goodness, and beauty, correspond to what we might call a domain or a plane. So for instance, truth, this is a big word, is in the epistemological domain. How do we know things? How do we know what we know? Goodness is in the moral domain, and beauty is in the aesthetic domain. Now, even if all those kind of big words are kind of confusing, here's the point. The gifts of God can be apprehended by us creatures here on earth, and we can experience him through those three areas, in truth, in goodness, and beauty. Now, when we experience the truth, goodness, or beauty of God, the point is that we don't 
just look at the object. So let's say you're beholding something beautiful. The point is not merely to stare at the object and say, that alone is beautiful, but the beauty in which you, the beauty that you experience, that beauty is meant to make you look up. For example, if you're watching a beautiful sunset, there's a way in which you could disregard the big questions of life and just look at the sunset and behold the beauty in and of itself. Or you can look at the sunset and thank God that there is such a majestic and beautiful thing in creation for you to observe. In other words, when you behold beauty, it has the ability to make you look up to see where all beauty comes from. Or let's talk about goodness in the moral domain. Let's say you hear a story about some type of great moral deed. Someone lays down his life to save others. The fact that that is stirring you on the emotional level is because that moral example points you upwards to the one in whom which all moral law comes from. And that we could say that's a good act, that sacrificial act. And so truth, goodness, and beauty, when we experience them, they're meant to point us upwards. Whenever you experience any good gift in this world, you have to understand that that ultimately comes from and finds its source in God. And I'm not just making this up. This is what scripture explicitly teaches. Listen to this, James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The father of life, lights, gives us gifts and they are good gifts and they come down to us. But as we experience them down here on earth, we have to recognize their origin, their source is not down here. They came from above the father of lights. So you experience truth, goodness, and beauty and the experience of truth, goodness, and beauty ought to make you look upwards. But I could show you that oftentimes when we experience those things, we just kind of think they're mundane or normal or no big deal rather than acknowledging the good gifts they are and thanking God from whom they come from. So when you see the beauty of a sunset, you should go, this is beautiful. Thank thank you, Lord. How majestic, how powerful you are that you spoke that into creation. And this could be done even on the smaller level. Think about, um, here's an easy way you can put this into practice tonight or for lunch or dinner going to eat dinner, and you thank God for the food. Because not only did God provide food to like nourish your body, but God has constituted your being and your body in such a way that you desire to intake food, and as you do so, there is pleasure that you experience, at least if the food is good, that's hopefully tonight that will be true of you, But if the food is good, you experience pleasure by eating something. And that's predicated on the fact that God has constituted your body to take in food like that. And so you thank thank God you are providing nourishment and thank you for this good food. This is is good. And you could do this with the small things. Think about the air you breathe. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. It's not saying there's not all these bad things but it's saying there's so many good, thank you, Lord, for food. There's food on the table. There's air in my lungs. I have shelter above my head. Do you see how if you were to regularly do these types of things, 
your, your eyes, just they're not stuck on the horizontal. I'm just looking at things. No, no, they're pointing me upwards. I'm looking up. When a people seek God, they not only will look at truth, goodness, and beauty and look up, but they will also desire to produce more truth, goodness, and beauty. And so, by extension, when a people abandon God, there will be less truth and goodness and beauty among that people. Now follow this here. Back to music and art and literature and architecture. When a people abandon the transcendent, when a people stop aiming for that which is most high, God himself, they don't seek to do things in a way that manifests the truth and goodness and beauty that he has given us. And so just by default, you will see less truth and goodness and beauty in a culture. Now, seeing less truth, goodness, and beauty in a culture, does this sound familiar? And I'm talking about like in every area. So not all music, but does the, does the majority of our music point us upwards? Or does it keep us here? Or even worse, point us downward? And I'm not talking about something as simple as like there's Christian music and there's non-Christian music. I'm talking about as a whole, the music that our people are, are creating, it, it keeps you here or here. It does not cause you to look up, to fix your gaze on that which is greater than you. It doesn't do that. And this isn't just me, like every generation goes, every generation thinks that the music of their generation was better. I'm sure you think early 2000s was awesome. No, I'm talking about this has been happening in our culture for a long time. It affects architecture. Do we, design do we design buildings that are as near as beautiful as the buildings people were building 1,000 years ago? Because those buildings were constructed. They were aiming high for the transcendent, pointing people to the glory and majesty of God. But we've lost those categories. So then we get filled with untruths and evil and ugliness. And so as Christians, what do we ought to do? We ought to... Listen to Paul and say, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You think about them. And if you learn to meditate and set your mind on these things, gratefulness will become easier to you. You'll, you'll be able to, to be a more thankful person. Look, I know there's all kinds of stuff that's bad in the world, but man, there is goodness. I see God's truth, goodness, and beauty all around me. And some of you are at this point, and some of you know people at this point. They have walked with God so long that things that are just mundane and boring and average to us are blessings to them. You go on a walk with someone who has walked with the Lord for 50, 60 years and developed an attitude of thanksgiving. Look, they're looking at a tree that you walk by every day. Look at how beautiful this tree is. That tree points me upwards to the creator. And, I, and not that I've mastered this, but I've seen growth in my own life where like a, a, a unique bird will fly by and go, thank, thank you, God, you let me see that cool bird. It's like beautiful, that bird was beautiful. You catch like a, a something we do, we like catch a lizard like a blue belly lizard, and you flip the blue belly lizard over. Look at the bright blue on this lizard. 
Look how beautiful, look how good God is that he would let us behold this vibrant blue on, on a lizard. Do you know these people? Have you been around them? They're thankful. And sometimes it's in the midst of a lot of things that by human understanding they should be upset about. They're suffering with this sickness. They've had this loss, this tragedy in their life. Lord, thank you. This tree's beautiful. Thank you, that, thank you that the birds woke me up. I heard the birds singing. Thank you, Lord. I heard the birds singing your praise when I woke up. Thank you for the sunset. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the air in my luck. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my family. And you watch when you develop that type of thankfulness. Man, some of those things you used to worry about aren't that big of a deal. So set your mind on that which is true, good, and beautiful. We look up, look up, and we have a lot of reason to look up and thank the Father of lights from whom all blessings flow. Now, all of this is grounded way back where we started. Remember the therefore? The whole section on joy started with a therefore. And the therefore was there for this. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Why do we have reason to rejoice? Because the Lord is at hand. We are citizens of his kingdom. He's coming back. And no matter how achy your body is right now, he's going to give you a new one. And no matter what's happened to you, what is happening to you, what will happen to you, Christ himself will come back and right the wrongs of this world. And so you always have reason to rejoice. Yes, you may have sorrows, deep sorrows. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are filled with sorrows, nevertheless always rejoicing because we have these promises. And though we can't be sure and certain about many things in this life, we can be sure and certain about that which is most important. So picture, picture right now you got, this may be true of you, but just if not, just picture, there's all kinds of problems in your life right now, man. You know, your sprinkler stopped working, the heater broke, you know, it's starting to get cold now. The heater broke, man. You got a dentist appointment tomorrow. Got a cavity. And you know when they look, they're going to say you need a root canal. And you got an ingrown toenail right on your big toe. You got to go to the dentist, root canal, ingrown toenail. The heater don't work. The car's about to fall apart. Got all these problems, all these things to worry about. And they're real things in the real world and they're real things to worry about. But let's also say... You have a $10 million debt, a $10 million debt that you cannot pay. And then out of nowhere, some random person just comes and says, I am going to pay your debt. Here's the 10 million. You are no longer in debt. Now, when you receive that $10 million and you pay off your debt, you're not going, oh, dude, but the dentist is still tomorrow. And I... I Better get extra blankets. Heater's not working. Someone paid off your $10 million debt. And yes, you still got to go to the dentist and get the root canal. Yes, you got to fix the heater, but someone paid off your debt. 
Friends, someone paid off your debt and it was a debt that you could not pay back. You didn't even have the currency needed to pay that type of debt. And someone came and paid it in full. And yes, you still have to get the root canal. And yes, the heater's still broken. And yes, the car's falling apart, but someone paid off your debt. Therefore, the Christian always has reason to rejoice and rejoice always, even in the midst of sorrow. The Lord is at hand. We are citizens of heaven and we await a savior who will transform our lowly bodies and will subject all things to himself. So in the midst of sorrow, Paul commands us, rejoice, rejoice always. Look out at the world. I know there's a lot of problems, but there is truth, there is goodness, and there is, a, there is beauty. And there is one from whom all blessings flow, the father of life. And he's given us so many good gifts. And for that reason, we have much to be thankful for. And with the remaining leftover stresses and anxieties and worries, we take those in thanksgiving, in supplication, and we say, God, help me with these. But first and foremost, thank you. You paid my debt. You paid my debt. When you realize that, it's a whole lot easier to look up. Christians are people who look up because we're awaiting our Savior to return. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he says, this is my body, it's given for you. And so we realize that the one from whom all blessings come from, all truth, goodness, and beauty come from, that that person came in to our domain. He came down and he experienced the opposite of truth, goodness, and beauty. He experienced the false, the evil, and the ugly. Falsely accused, handed over to the brutality and ugliness to the worst that humanity, humanity can do but he goes in it and through it because he is the good king who gives up his body for his people. So no matter what's been going on, what is going on, or whatever will go on, Christians can always heed the command, rejoice, rejoice always, the Lord is at hand. We take the cup, the blood of the new covenant, his blood shed on our behalf. And in it, Paul the Apostle says that as long as we're taking this, in the very act, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so in this, we find the meaning of the Lord is at hand. He is near, he is close. We believe in his death and resurrection, but we will proclaim it until he returns because the Lord is at hand and the Lord is at hand. Christ's presence is here with his people. He is with us, whether you feel it or know it or believe it. Christ's presence, he's near, he is God with us. But he will also return in power and glory and he will right the wrongs of this world. And so we declare our allegiance to Jesus, our King, until he returns. Father, as we close, as we always say, we give you thanks 
you've been good to us. And no matter what problems we may be having, the debt has been paid. And so we, we long for your return. We want you to return. And we take great hope in the fact that in despite of our rebellion and our sin and our wickedness and all of that, you saw fit to come down to us and die and rise on our behalf. You are our great hope. All of our hope is in you. All of it. One day we will face death and we will have nothing else, no other hope to cling to but you. And so may we cling to that hope now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.